For Captain and Neil, love keeps us together. Pat told us love was a battlefield. Freddie just wanted you to find him somebody to love. Frank and Nancy said saying I love you really ruins the mood. Meatloaf would do anything for love, but he wouldn't do that. Whitney will always love you. Florence knew someone had the love that would see her through. Elvis couldn't help falling in love. J-Lo told us love don't cost a thing, but even then, you can't buy it for the Beatles. How would you go about falling in love? Especially when your desired object of affection has been used as a weapon against you. My guest today set out on just such a quest. As a queer woman who grew up in both conservative evangelical and progressive Protestant churches, she knew too well how scripture can be used to wound and exclude. And yet, as the Lion King 2 teaches us, love finds a way. The stories of scripture continue to captivate and inspire her, both as a person of faith and as a pastor to a congregation. So she set out to fall in love with the Bible, wrestling with the stories inside where she met a God who continues to seek us out, appearing again and again as a voice, a presence, a promise. Whenever we are pushed to the edges, our voices silenced or our stories dismissed, God goes out after us, seeking us until we are found again. And God is seeking out those whose voices we too quickly silence and dismiss because God's story is a story of welcome and acceptance for everyone, no exceptions. My name is Liam Miller and this is Love, Rinse, Repeat. My guest today is Reverend Emmy Kegler, pastor, doodler, seeker of lost coins. Emmy serves as the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in northeast Minneapolis, which has an outreach ministry called Queer Grace Community. You can find out more about both online. Her new book, One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins, is currently available for pre-order. Get on it. And while you're opening that tab, please welcome, by a round of applause wherever you are, welcome Emmy Kegler to Love Rinse, repeat. Well, Emmy, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be not back with you on Love, Rinse, Repeat, but back with you um, after, how many years has it been since? It's just, uh, o- just over two years. Just over That's two fantastic. years. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so for those who don't know, Emmy's uh, referring to, I hosted a uh, 24-hour long web conference a few years ago called Jesus 1224 and Emmy was one of our speakers and uh, mm-hmm. you can actually hear her talk uh, I think it's like episode nine of Love and Repeat was a re-upload of, of Emmy's talk so uh, but yes that was that was some time ago now but uh, exciting nonetheless to be talking to you again uh, after all these years um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so your book One Coin Found is is about a week away from when we're recording yeah coming out and uh how are you feeling what's the what's the emotional roller coaster at this point (laughs) um a friend of mine who who is a published author said it it has a resemblance to bringing children into the world of like you have something that you work on by yourself for a while and then suddenly it's here and your entire life like is upended because you've put this thing into the world and you become in, uh, in a lot of ways more vulnerable, um, very protective of it, and at the same time very very proud of it and wanting to show it off. So um, that's that's accurate for how I'm feeling, both, okay. both very nervous and also just very excited. Right. Well, and so one of the things I guess people can do is as they uh, receive your child into the world is say lots of nice things about it uh, to you that's and right. to the world. So uh, <laughs> that's always nice. Um, well, so this book has probably been a while coming, like, you, you know, you've been exploring these ideas for, for some time in various forms. Uh, I guess, what was it that kind of prompted you, pushed you to, to, you know, end this, not end this journey, but see this journey through all the way to a book? Because a book is a lot of effort, a lot of time. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a vulnerable process too. What, what, what was the itch that you were like, I won't have scratched this properly until there's, until the book is out? Yeah, I had a friend, uh, my, uh, my editor for OneCoin Found actually, is a friend from seminary and works for a publishing house here in the Twin Cities and came to me on multiple occasions and said, you know, I really think you should write a book. Mm. And I was really unsure of what I could 
put into a long form that would make that would make sense and also that would be of valuable contribution. You know, I didn't want to write yet another sort of LGBT apologetics about like, this is why we read these six or seven or nine passages within their context and you shouldn't use them to tell people that they can't belong to your church. We have enough books on that. We don't need to do more. Mm-hmm. And so, so the idea of, so Lisa kept coming back to me and saying, you know, I, re- I really think you have a book in you. We want to see what you would write. And what ended up happening was telling the story of why I keep making these arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Why I keep participating in a church, in a religion, in um, an institution that in many ways has tried to keep me out. And for me, that story has very much been about um, my relationship with scripture. It's not so much about my relationship with church practice or with um, theology or doc- or doctrine or, you know, sort of religious philosophy. For me, it's very much been about my involvement with the scriptures. And so that's what I ended up writing was a book that told both the stories of my life alongside the stories of scripture that have meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah. as you say, you, you've been, you, you're, committed the church, you're ordained uh, mm-hmm. minister, and you've been an ordained minister while writing the book. Um, what's that process been like, you know, having to, while writing the book, also show up, uh, not just on Sundays, but like, let's just say on Sundays to preside over sacraments, to preach the word, like, and then to pastorally care and to explore new forms of church and mission and witness in the, in the community. What's it been like having to, you know, kind of stay in that world while... Uh, you know, also exploring your own journey and and trying to put it in the most uh, exciting way possible. Yeah. Uh, One of the things was that I did have to stick to a relatively strict schedule as far as writing went. So I had to be very firm with myself that I had to get everything done for church by Friday afternoon and then get my writing done on Saturday. My wife uh, works most Saturdays. So like, okay, I'm not going to see her. I'm going to get this writing done. And sometimes I was successful. Sometimes I was not. Um, but that was one of the most important things was I don't want working on this book to compromise my ability to do ministry. I don't want, you know, to be shirking my duties at church. If I'm working on the book, that's not, I don't want them to feel like competing ministries. I want them to feel like they're working together. And I felt really grounded to be able to come back and keep thinking about, you know, how do I preach on Sundays? What does it mean to be you know, presiding over the sacraments and working pastorally, visiting people in hospitals. A lot of, a lot of the way that I understand theology and scripture is very informed by everyday life. Like for for, for me, this is not um, an academic exercise. It's not, you know, something that works, that can work only for certain situations. I really wanted to be able to write a book that I could take with me you know, and stand next to someone in a hospital room or stand behind the communion table with and say, like, both of these things are still true. I still make a faithful confession in this book, and I can also look into the face of suffering. I make a faithful confession in this book, and I meet God in the communion table and the practice of the Eucharist. And I think if that hadn't, if I hadn't been able to find that congruence, it would have, I don't think I would have been able to write the book. Mm. That's really cool, yeah, and, and it obviously would shape it, you know, the two feeding into each other, um, and it comes through in, in the book as well, I think, this, this groundedness and this and this commitment, so, yeah, that's great. Great, so, thank you. As you say, you, this is about your journey with Scripture, your, your mm-hmm. you know, relationship with Scripture. So uh, you mentioned in the book, like many, you were kind of schooled in ways of reading the Bible informed by kind of this hermeneutics of suspicion, Uh, and by, like, interdisciplinary movement, you know, feminist readings of text, queer theory and and those readings of text. But um, as you chronicle in the book, while that was helpful, you didn't feel that's where you could stay. Uh, You didn't feel that's where it was going to be the best for you long term. I guess, why was that? How did that kind of start to emerge in your own journey that that was? Because a lot of people have, as you say, found um, vitality in life there. What was that that kept pushing you to go, actually, I need to, there's something else that I need to find? Right. And I think I want to, I hope that in the book, it's clear that I don't consider those disciplinary, those disciplines an inaccurate way to read the Bible or an inaccurate way to dwell into faith. It was simply for me, it was not carrying me through. And I think that was in large part to do with ministry. Like I, I felt like I was taking the Bible apart and breaking it down, you know, sort of into 
I don't know if you had a if you had a Lego structure and I was able to take it all apart but then I was just left with a mess and I didn't feel like I was finding the inspiration to preach to serve as pastor to call people to transformation and the working in the world I was just taking everything apart and again that's only where where I'm at like that's where I'm at today and has been for the past 10 years it may change and I'm open to that but that was really key for me was how do I knowing how to take this apart is essential to protecting my existence as a minister and as a person really within the Christian church but that doesn't give me enough to preach on that doesn't give me enough to not necessarily to to put together into the content of a sermon because it makes a great sermon but for me to actually feel like there's something meaningful in the sermon. It didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I was bringing something important to the table when I was only able to take things apart. And yeah, I I really had to work at that. Um, And I I detail in the book, and I think in the the Christian Century excerpt that's been published um, and is available, I think I sent you the PDF. I'll also send you the link because they've now posted it um, so that your listeners and viewers can also read that. Excellent. Um, but I think one of the, it, it was just, it was a discipline, a new discipline that I had to commit myself to of believing that there was something worthwhile in the scriptures that went beyond just taking it down into its smallest pieces. Mm. Yeah, that's really great, and it, and it again does come through, and it and it is, I guess, probably what comes through as you're trying to develop this for a community and for people who, you know, I don't have, I can't, um, you know, do the work every sermon of going, okay, this is where this uh, kind of reading comes from, and we've got to like this suspicion, and then like, all right, oh, cool, thirty five seconds to go, okay, here's something that might be some good news for you, you know, like, and, and I agree, like, right. it's not to, um, this is not to dismiss those forms of reading which are, you know, incredibly liberative and and, and guiding and, and wonderful but it's just yeah there is sometimes a different pull when all of a sudden it's like well I'm reading this for how I bring it to life for a community from all different uh angles and perspectives so yeah I think it's really yeah, fascinating exactly mm. so as you were trying to fall in love with scripture uh you, you kind of engaged this 90-day bible reading plan the idea is I'm just going to read and and just let it hit me in some sense, uh, let it come across. So you, you hit the story of Jacob uh, and the man he wrestles, this, mm-hmm. this enigmatic figure that just appears and wrestles through the night. Um, I guess what did this story mean for you as you were finding your way through this uh, this reading plan and, and, and how did it shape your hope that you might fall again in love with scripture? Mm-hmm. It didn't. I think the book makes it a little more dramatic probably than what happened. I was probably just churning through. I mean, that's, that's how you tell a good story, right? Uh, (laughs) I was churning through the chapters, trying to get through the reading. And this is early on uh, in the, probably, you know, the third or fourth day that I'm still in the midst of Genesis. And what it became for me was just a story that I kept tapping back to. Mm. Um, And especially as I was starting to get into you know, reading through numbers, through Leviticus, through the histories, which gets so dry, um, even though they're, I mean, dramatically, sexually violent spies, they're on the level of, you know, a compelling episode of Game of Thrones. The histories really don't read in a very exciting method. Um, It's just the way they're normally translated. And I just kept coming back to like, if I'm going to have a metaphor or a lens for how I read this, I want to have something that is scriptural. Uh, and I, and that was where I started seeing this, this idea of wrestling. Yes. And a lot of, I mean, there's long existing commentaries of people talking about wrestling with the text, but especially that idea of the text offers both a burden and a blessing, right? Jacob walks away with a limp, but also walks away, no longer called Jacob. He walks away called Israel for you have striven with God and with humans and you have prevailed. And the idea of sort of sitting with something and saying, look, I'm not giving up until I find something good in this felt very real to how that whole process was going. 
Yeah, that's really great. Um, and I, yeah, I've always been struck by the, like, he does walk away wounded, like completely transformed. Um, and, and, and you know, he's, you know, um, the thing he's hoping that won't happen, which is warfare with his um, brother, is is averted. But, yeah, he, he walks with a limp the rest of his life. So it is an intriguing uh, thing. I, I was also thinking about it because, um, so Tony Kushner, the, the famed playwright of Angels in America, uh, yeah. The the Jacob wrestling motif is obviously uh, prominent in that play, and uh, mm-hmm. well, for those who've seen the HBO miniseries, uh, and um, he kind of talked about that uh, that wrestling and the blessing, the demanding of blessing. That the way he had kind of heard that interpreted was a, the blessing is a demand for more life, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what really comes out in that play. It's like he. Um, uh, Bro, um, who's wrestling with the angel? I'm just <laughs> blanking on the character's name for a second. I'm sure I wasn't going to be able to be helpful. So <laughs> good job. He's, he's, you know, it's, it's during the HIV/AIDS crisis, you know, in the states, and he's wrestling with this angel, demanding a blessing, demanding you know more life. Uh, and I was considering this as, as you say, like um, that more life is also a symbolic thing. That I'm wrestling with the scriptures for, for more life rather than a, a, a curse or a. A, a weapon, but more life. I don't know if that ever kind of came across in your research or study or how that hit, uh, uh, sounds to you now, but that was something that came to me as I was uh, reading your, 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 your section on this. It's, uh, I didn't watch the HBO series. I did see a production of Angels in America when I was in college, but so that wasn't as fresh in my mind. Um, and I think it was only the first half and I think the wrestling happened more prominently in the second, mm. but I really like that. I think that really works. And I think that's very much, we don't know, you know, the conversation that Jacob and the angel messenger man stranger who wrestled with him, you know, those multiple interpretations and layers mm. that we've added on. We don't know, you know, what they said to each other. Just this guy shows up and just like tackles him to the ground and they start wrestling all night. Um, what was the, you know, what was the impetus there? Mm. And Every blessing, I think, that we, we encounter in the Hebrew scriptures when, when God offers a blessing or when a blessing is asked for is a blessing for life, right? Mm. Jacob steals the, the, the blessing from his brother, and it's a blessing of abundant life. Mm. And I, I, I like that parallel. That, I think that really works. Mm. So uh, um, another thing I was thinking here with the, so this Jacob walking with a limb. Um, back when you, you talked at um, Jesus 1224 was the idea of you know wounds being kind of coming from the Bible these, these uh, wounding words that we were trying to you know turn back from swords into plowshares was, was an image you used that has always struck, stuck with me um, and there are many who have been wounded from and still carry the wounds from their interactions with scripture um, but I was thinking also about then the image of Jesus kind of resurrected body in the story with Thomas, that that the wounds are still there, even on the resurrection. And there's a sense that as Jacob gets this new name and a chance for new destiny, as Christ get you know, habits the resurrection resurrected body, neither of these come on blank slates. Like the newness yes. still comes and there's still wounds. So I was exploring how that kind of intersect um interacts with your journey and with, and with the book and, and your hope for those who are reading it, still carrying those those wounds. Yeah, that story uh, of Jesus, you know, resurrected, but still with wounded wrists and feet comes up in uh, chapter nine, when I write about um, heaven, the afterlife, I don't get particularly specific, I'm talking about, you know, sort of the next life after death, Uh, my father passed away about three and a half years ago. And so I think about what our relationship is now that he's passed on. I'm still here that he is in many ways freed from things that held him back in this life. And we all know, you know, like physical, but also, you know, mental or emotional things that we've done, you know, all the stuff we want to shed and joke about that we need to go to therapy for. I I think, you know, that there's some semblance of freedom from that in the next life. I mean, I really hope I don't take all of my baggage with me, but then, you know, shedding it, what does that look like anyway? Um, I do talk about the fact that the resurrected body is not made perfect, it's made whole. But the scars are still part of that. Um, you know, they're still part of actually Jesus's proof, like this is who I am, you know me because I'm scarred. Mm-hmm. And that's been particularly informed for me by um, ministry with and to and among trans um, folks who've been through um, gender conforming surgery, right? Mm-hmm. And, and 
like I have scars now and that is how I know that my body is mine. And that has been really beautiful for me to think about what restoration, what resurrection, what fullness looks like in the next life to not imagine that, you know, everyone who has a disability in this life will be completely freed from it. If it's become an integral part of who they are and how they interact with the world, with others and with God, not that we'll be, you know, clean slate, somehow perfected golden lily white flying around with wings bodies, but rather what does it mean to live into the fullness of who we are and for, Christ, the fullness of who he is, includes the wounds the world put on him for preaching a message of love. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. And mm. um, just so everyone yeah, is aware that Emmy Kegler is saying no wings um, in the afterlife, just so that's really clear for everyone. <laughs> I'm not, wait, wait, wait. I didn't say no wings. <laughs> I just said, I don't know. I don't know if there will be wings. <laughs> Please don't get me in trouble. People really like their wings. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fan art really in trouble. Um, so, um, no, but I think that's, that's very good. I, I know, like, also, like, um, yeah, like, uh, disability theology, disabled theology, like um, Nancy Isleford, like, you know, centers on that as well, that like yeah, the you know, resurrected body won't like be like, oh yeah, that like this is part of who we are and it won't go. But yeah, as you say, it's 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 a really important thing to engage with. Um, so And I want to respect that that's different for different people. Mm. You know, I don't want to say for all trans people they're, you know, excited about having scars yeah. or having to go through surgery or for all um people with disabilities or disabled people that they don't want to shed those disabilities in the next life. I think the important thing is to have a theology that can wrap around all of those experiences. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are still people who say like, I don't want to have this exact body in the next life. And I want to be respectful of that. I think it's not about exactly, you know, everyone getting issued a cookie cutter Mm -hmm. next life, but rather like, what is the fullness of ourselves look like? And I really hope it all looks different or it will be, boring yeah 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 as you said that's where that made whole um right. comes in because that's going to be what is wholeness for me is whole is different for, for someone else but right we'll but we'll we'll see it as wholeness i think that would be a big thing um right. so in the uh in the chapter shut up uh great title um and also good great art on the top of the chapter pages that's really cool uh mm-hmm. so um you talk about the god you wanted to stop talking to you know, the God you wanted to be free of, the God of so much uh, insufferable political and religious expression all around you. Uh, but, but like Jeremiah, there was a fire in your bones uh, and, and so there was, a, there was another God that you had to witness to, another, another presence that you couldn't shake, something so radically different and, and dramatically beautiful. Uh, and I was thinking of that, that great um, St. Augustine line that what do I love when I love my God? Uh, mm-hmm. And so I guess, any you know, as you, as you develop that chapter and as you went on this whole journey, you know, what is it that you love when you love your God? And I guess how did that differ for you um, from what is so often, you know, presented all around? Right. And of course, the, the flip side to that quote is the quote that often gets assigned to Anne Lamott, um, but she says it comes from one of her Jesuit teachers is... I know that I've made God in my own image when he hates all the same people that I hate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, as a, as a white chick from the suburbs, it was very easy. It would have been very easy for me to stay within the confines of a God who fits very well into American religion, right? A God of dominance, a God of whiteness, a God of supremacy over the other, a God who, you know, has very strict boundaries and, keeps puts walls up to keep people out and make sure that we don't let any riffraff in Mm. and I just couldn't find any congruence with that kind of God either in my personal experience of being a queer woman and feeling like, like simply having the emotion of being loved by God and of the God that I met in the scriptures like those two seem to be able to be congruent, but this idea of this God that was, you know, domineering and destructive and violent um, as encapsulated in, I think, American religion, I, I didn't see a connection to either the God of the scriptures or to the God of my experience there. And so I went, well, okay, if I'm going to pick two out of three, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm staying within the Christian umbrella, so I likely have to 
keep the scripture. And if that scripture is a direct witness against a God that, you know, is always for the guy on top, you know, mm. like we love underdog mm. stories in America, but we don't want to be the underdog story. Like we want to be mm. the one who's in charge of everything. And we've seen what that's done to us, right? This love of like this love of underdog stories without realizing that we're not actually the underdog. We are a, a terrifying world power that needs to really wield what it can do with grace and wisdom. When we've chosen not to recognize that, it doesn't go well. Um, so yeah, that was, it really, what happened was I just got to a point where I just, I literally stopped writing the word God. I actually wrote a 12 page paper about um, some form of medieval theology. I think it was Erasmus and some other, it wasn't Luther, but it was some other like voice in contention with Erasmus. And I had to do a 10 to 15 page paper on it. And I didn't use the name of God once. So I was just like, I'm not putting like this had nothing like this old argument has nothing to do with what I'm experiencing in the congregation where I'm interning in the um, in my own experience of God in the God of the scriptures. Like, I don't see any congruence here. Mm. And so I just said, I'm not I'm not doing it. Um, and my professor didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so that's kind of an interesting. I mean, that, that was more work than it was worth, perhaps. <laughs> but. For me, I mean, I did have to get to the point where I came back to saying, I have to find something to confess about God. Mm -hmm. But having that time where I just said, I'm not not going to write the name of God. I'm not going to speak the name of God unless I really feel like this is something I can assent to, like, this is true to my experience and to the God that I meet in the scriptures. I'm not going to say God with mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. I think that's really like, an, an interesting journey to go through just to be, uh, you know, that kind of intentional about you know, what is it we're saying and, and what does it mean and, and that it should mean something. Um, yeah, I think that's really, we, um, with my church, we have like, you know, intercessory prayers or prayers of the people um, that are, you know, shared by the, the you know, people from the people on a roster to do it. Uh, and there's some people ask like, okay, well, how do I do it and what kind of you know, language? And, and, you know, there's a bunch of practical kind of things that we encourage. But, and one of the things I've kind of talked about is when you're thinking about how you begin to address God in the prayer, it's often thinking about what other things you're praying for and what are the attributes you see of God that that meet that. And, and that's been something that I've seen really people are surprised me of what they what they see and how they then name God based on what what it is that of God that they are seeking and and, and appealing to. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, process. Yeah, I think I got the chance to do it because I was in seminary and mm. we're writing about God constantly, but recreating that experience for people who don't go through mm. four years of an undergrad that focuses on religion or you know advanced degrees i think be figuring out how to bring that experience of no what do i really think and how does that connect to common christian confession you know whether you scripture tradition theology etc um how do i put that into words i think the better we can equip people to do that the more i mean the more honest our prayers are, but also the the deeper we allow faith to really plant itself. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, thank you. Mm -hmm. So, so your writing is 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 quite in parts quite poetic, you know, scrumptious language that's really a joy to read. Uh, and I know from like your sermon prep that you share online, um, your way of uh, note taking or sermon scripting that it's it's, it's own kind of uh, own kind of art form. So. How does this kind of fit together for you? Um, is, is you know is this something you just you know is it an add-on, but or is it something that's you know grounded in the very nature of God and creativity, like this whole theology, poeticism, preaching, and mm. aesthetics? Uh, how is that all, all related to you? Is it, you know, organically, or is it a thing you stumbled upon? Like, what's what is that journey? Sure, um, that's a lot of questions all folded yeah, together. Yeah, that's, um, that's I don't. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a writer from a young age, and I grew up in a house. Um, my parents were both English professors, so I was surrounded by books and surrounded by, you know, really classic children's literature, Shel Stil Shel St okay, now it's stuck, Shel Silverstein, there we go, um, 
and other, you know, really excellent kids poets mm -hmm. and getting that sense of how, how a rhythm of language works. I had some really excellent professors in seminary who taught us to, you know, be more prepared to speak without a manuscript. And so how does that sound and how do you get patterns into your voice that allow you to do that? Mm -hmm. We had a really fantastic, you know, day where we just sit and listen to the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. and listen to the way that he used phraseology, the way he came back to certain um, key words, or the way he drew on different visions and walked through a particular text. And that helped me get to the point of saying, I don't need a manuscript. And actually, I feel more held back by it because I can't be as responsive to what's happening within the congregation. Mm. You know, now that I'm working off of the sort of sermon doodles that I do, which is what I call them, I can look at the congregation and I can see, you know, we, I have at best 70 folks on a Sunday, so I can see the reaction on everyone's face and I can mm -hmm. see like, oh, I need, I'm going to need to walk this back a little and add more. Mm -hmm. And the more that I preach off of a manuscript, the more that, or without a manuscript, the more that I use just the doodle, the more confident I feel about like, I don't have to have it written exactly. I can just mm -hmm. work off the cuff and elaborate on something. When I first sent in my book proposal to Lisa, because um, she'd been bugging me, and I finally said, okay, here's the book proposal. And she, I think, called me up about a day or so after she'd gotten it. And she said, did you draw this before you wrote it, or did you just write it out? And I said, I just wrote it out. I mean, it's it's a text document. You, you want you wanted like a draft table of content, so I just wrote it. And she said, yeah, don't do that. You need to do a sketch first. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you preach, I've read what you write, and I can tell when you've done a sketch first and this you haven't done the sketch. <laughs> I was like, okay. And she was right, I hadn't, because I was like, well, this is, a, this is a proper writing project, so I need to write, you know, chapter one, blah, blah, blah. And what the doodles have always allowed me to do is really open up to the larger picture and pull back and be able to see like, oh, there's interconnected themes in chapter four and chapter nine. Mm -hmm. I better make sure to rearrange that or move this particular theme there, drop this scripture back into this other chapter. Um, and it just improves the whole flow, at least for how I write. Mm -hmm. And so um, I did that for the next table of contents and Lisa was much happier. <laughs> and that ended up being with the table of contents and the proposal that we went with. And uh, I did that for a good number of the chapters, although they're not, uh, they're a lot more scribbly. When I, when I write for sermon preaching and I know I'm going to put it online, then it's often a little more refined as far as the handwriting goes, but this is all just mess. And for me, um, right, I've, I've said already, it's about, you know, creating that freedom for spontaneity and preaching, but it's also about me getting beyond my perfectionism, which is really been, is problematic for me as a writer, has been problematic for me becoming a published author, going like, I can't believe I put that in a book. Why did I think a year ago that that was a good idea? Um, and so I do the same thing with my sermons. I'll look back over them and go, oh, I can't stand that phrasing. Why did I say it that way? It's like, because you wrote it that way. Give yourself a break. Yeah. And when I can't, read my sermons over again when I can only look at it and go like, oh, I know I hit these main points because mm. um, those are the four main points that I wrote. And when I rehearsed it out loud five or six times, I knew those were the ones I wanted to hit. Um, that's just made it a lot easier for me in preaching to feel more confident, to feel, um, yeah, just more satisfied at the end of it to not, you know, go post my sermon on a podcast or online and go, oh, I hate that. It was just the worst. I'm going to have to edit this for three hours. Well, damn. <laughs> it's, it's done. And mm. that's a much healthier way for me. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That's great. Um, so I guess as the book is about to go out there, uh, you know, what is your, like, if you, as you were developing it, did you have like a particular like hope in mind as, as, as for the reader coming to this to, to, you know, who are coming into your story for a little while into the stories of the scriptures and, and yeah, what was your kind of hope that at the end when they close that book, uh, what's, what's, what was your hope for the your reader? I think, um, the, the hope goes in a lot of different directions. There's definitely some hope that people who think, uh, that women or that members of the LGBTQ community don't have anything to say of, about scripture that's of value. I hope that this book might change some minds for people in that community because I, 
um, I really do very intentionally interweave scripture into the stories that I'm telling and have tried to be, um, I don't want to say correct, have tried to be as clear as I can and tie those in and say like, this is not, you know, just a, a flight of fancy for me. This isn't something I'm just throwing in there to make it look good. Like this is something I've deeply integrated with my life. And I want you to be able to witness to that. But more than that, I think my hope is for people who have felt like they are pushed to the edges, who didn't fit the script that Christianity handed out in whatever form they experienced it, that I've told my story in a way that reinvites them into Christian practice, especially around the scriptures, that makes it feel like the Bible is openable again. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really, I'm really hopeful. I just confirmed um, a friend who runs a nearby summer camp reached out and said we really want to do a book retreat weekend, and we'd like to try it with your book. So I'm going to do a Friday through Sunday reflection of like, what do we do with the book and what reflections do we take from it? And I'm really hoping that can be a space of reintegrating for folks who want to get back into scripture, but Mm. can't because of the way it's been used to wound them. Um, Can this book, can that retreat, Mm. can whatever else I produce um, in relation to the book be an open door for that? Not that I you know, need to drag people through it or need to see people shove through it, but rather, you know, if, if you're looking for the door, here it is. Mm, that's really great. I'm really excited about that. That, that sounds like a great camp. Uh, that's well done. I'm awesome. really excited too. Yeah. I love camp. So that's going to be great. <laughs> that's like, great. Programming. Who's, can we just like hang out and eat marshmallows? <laughs> that part of the... yeah. Well, it seems like you have some sway in what happens here. Anyway, so, uh, it's I true. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we playing capture the flag? Because the flag is lost, just like the coin. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it all fits together. It all um, works. That's wonderful. You should have, yeah. The youth pastor seems to be like, if you ever need a pivot shift, it seems like that's open to you at this stage. <laughs> Ideas like that, that's there. That's a night. That's <laughs> right. That's... <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, we used to do these um, uh, Maccas crawls, or like McDonald's. So in Australia, we call it Maccas. Um, McDonald's crawls where you basically, you could find it out. know that. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. So um, like it's called McDonald's, but no one calls it that. Um, so you'd start, you'd go basically across the Friday night of youth group, you'd go like three McDonald's across the night. You'd go to like, you know, you get chicken nuggets at one, then a burger at another, then like the ice cream or a McFlurry at the, at the third. Uh, and I'm sure that someone was like, this is much like the pilgrimage that <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I'm sure there was some talk partly through. I'm like, uh, as soon as I just, a good way to buy time for the, <laughs> the kids. Uh, yeah. Please get out of the church. <laughs> we can't deal with you anymore totally. no I think th- it's funny that you mentioned that we're c- coming up obviously on um, Holy Week and Easter in just a few weeks and one of the things that we do at my church is do a passion walk that is structured mm. around like mimicking the journey of Jesus in his last 24 hours and it's always been interesting every year that I've done it I've done them for I think five or six years now and it's always been interesting like when you have kids, what that what happens? Mm. You know, now they're running, they're chasing, they're playing tag along the way, and how that turns what could be a really solemn process mm. into something that's just so much more real and alive, mm. um, and also you know a positive memory for them, but also like life went on around mm. around Jesus even as he was dying, and as the disciples and the women were mourning, you know, and, mm. and following him to the cross, life still went on around. And what does that mean yeah. to practice our faith in that? awareness mm. anyway that's, that's so this it. is why i'll never make it as a youth pastor because i always get to that point where i'm like but now we're going to be serious kids yeah. and that's when you lose all of them so yeah i was never good at it either so i, I, I empathize uh, so <laughs> i want to come back to the book for one more question but um you do some other excellent things um so before we go to the book there you know while writing this you've also started this uh queer grace community uh I'd love, you know, tell us a bit about that, plug that, maybe people will come to it. Uh, I don't know, orders people might be interested in what's going on and how they might be able to learn from it in their own, in their own spaces. Yeah, that's something, something we're hoping to do. We actually applied for a grant and got the funding, which was amazing. And some of the funding is going to go to like creating educational materials or educational, creating, I don't know, creating materials around how we got to where we are and how it could be replicated or improved on. 
And so uh, what it is, is it's a ministry, um, an outreach ministry housed within the church that I pastor that's specifically designed to and for and by LGBTQ Christians. And, you know, also we, we have a lot of agnostics or post-Christians, um, post-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals who hang out with that community as well. So people who in one way or another have connected with Christianity and are trying to make sense of it, reconnect with it, disentangle the mess of it um, from the perspective of belonging to the LGBTQ community. So we gather about once a week. Um, we do worship once a month and it's kind of an evangelical and mainline blend. So we have some contemporary music that's band led. We also have you know, very specific scripture readings and a sermon and then these interactive prayer stations, communion that we share together. We have fellowship for usually about two hours after <laughs> until I'm like, okay, you guys, it's, it's a Sunday. I've been here since 8 a.m. It is now 8 p.m. You need to leave. Um, and we do Bible study. We do um, game nights just for an additional sort of fellowship opportunity. And then we do, we, we join up with cultural events going on in the community. We've been to bystander training um, for people who are working against Islamophobia and racism um, we've been to, we go to the roller girl derbies, which are fantastic. Um, so it's a community of people just trying to find their place within these two intersecting communities. We've been doing it for about a year and a half. Um, and we have this, this nice, amazing, you know, this group of people who are like, I don't always know why I'm here, but I know I need to be here. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we meet up in if any of your listeners or viewers are up in Northeast Minneapolis, that's where we are. Um, you can search Queer Grace Community on Facebook, or we have a website as well. If you, if you Google it, it'll be the top result. And yeah, it's just, it's been so life-giving and wonderful. And I have two co-leaders who are amazing. Um, I've actually managed to delegate something for once in my life which has been really fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> That's wonderful. No, it's so good to hear. I mean, loving seeing stuff online about it. So I thought I'd take the opportunity. because, And also, because Queer Grace, before it was a community, uh, was a URL. So that's right. the other thing I guess. And that, still, exi <laughs> that yeah. still exists. And the two things formed independently. You know, we had this community of, like, we called them LGBTQ Christians or, you know, mm. LGBTQ Christian Outreach. And finally, we said, okay, we need a name. Mm. And my co-leader said, well, why don't we call it Queer Grace Community? And I'm like, no, I already have that name. I don't want it to be, a, like, entertaining and just like that feels gross that I've had this name for a while and we're just going to steal like I don't want to just put that brand on everything yeah. that feels weird and, icky. and they were like well it's a good name so <laughs> you're outvoted <laughs> yeah that's fantastic Queer Grace uh, is, is a, maybe the most one of the most uh, websites I have sent to someone else uh, it, it, so uh, it, it is truly terrific it's always a good first point of call for anyone interested in it uh, in these questions in this area. It's a great, great database, a resource, um, mm. encyclopedia. Uh, that's, <laughs> um, that's the word I use, but any of those will work. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, one final question about the book. This is a new segment. I'm, I'm debuting a new segment with you, Emmy. It's, it's, it's exciting. Great. It could, it. it could crash and burn, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just actually going to mark an edit point in case. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, This is before it all went downhill, right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, so the new segment is called Pairings. Uh, so I'm interested about pairings with your book. So I'm after like a meal pairing. So what, you know, you're, someone's going to sit down to eat, uh, read the book. What should, they, what should they serve with a meal? Uh, I want a music pairing. Uh, so a okay. song or an album, something like that, that can go. Uh, and and then another book pairing. So after they've finished reading One Coin Found, what's the next Great. book they should pick up? If you want a second, I'll offer my three for you. Great. You also be like, nah, Liam, you missed the point. Um, and, then, and then we'll hear yours. So oh, I love it. Yeah, you go first. The book is fresh. It's healthy. It's good for you. But it's got plenty of meat and flavor too. So chicken Caesar salad. You know, a nice fresh... Good, healthy lettuce, some bacon, some chicken, some um, croutons. You know, that's it can be a dinner, it can be a lunch, it can it goes anytime. That's that's the one, that's the meal. Uh, for the music, okay, it's, it's maybe a little too obvious a choice, but I'm going with um, Julian Baker's Rejoice. Um, you can just oh, have that on repeat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can basically play any Julian Baker song, just, just right. you know, that would all, but that one particularly. Uh, and then the book, it's tough. There's a lot of different options I could go for. 
uh, but I've gone for, since it's the scripture and the margins theme, I'm going for Miguel de la Torre's uh, Reading the Bible from the Margins. Ooh, so, ooh. That, would, that, would, that would follow well. So, oh, wow. They're mine. Now, I had time to think about it because I invented the okay. segment, so don't feel any pressure, but, um, it's, it, but your, your answers can't be wrong. Mine can be. That's so true. That, that's <laughs> well, no, that's, that's the other problem with putting a book out into the world is now other people like own it and have a feeling <laughs> about it. And I can't delig. I mean, there's only so much I can delegitimize. So I mean, you can't be I, like JK Rowling, just, you know, just send out tweets every other month. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not going to suddenly reveal four years later that a key character in my book was Jewish. <laughs> they all are. <laughs> That's great. Um, at least the, the ones that are from the, the biblical stories. Okay. Um, it may just be because it's spring here and we're finally getting out of the, the freeze, mm. but I was thinking, um, just a really nice bowl of hearty soup, like oh, something that's yeah. really got some substance to it mm -hmm. and some really good, you said croutons. I'm thinking like a really good rye bread, sourdough, something you can like dip yeah. in and really yeah. get like the last um, mm -hmm. moppings of the soup up with, So you know, like tomato, basil, beer cheese, yeah. mm. um, broccoli cheddar, something with like that thickness. Before. Of course, these are all things that I can't eat because I'm on a gluten-free diet right now. Oh, um, but it sounds good. <laughs> but yes, it works for, for the reader. It's for the reader. Right, that, exactly. That yeah. um, and for my gluten-free friends, uh, I don't know, like something kind of funky, like a like a quinoa beet fig salad. Mm. Um, oh. Draw on some of those kind of like ancient grains, but also like freshen it up with some kale. Oh, I like it. Um, that's my go-to. Uh and then music, okay. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so, there's so many. I always, I have a lot of anxiety about my taste in music because I'm always <laughs> maybe five to six years behind the times. Like I'm still listening to um, Sarah Grove's Conversations, which came out in, I think, 97. Um, so, you know, I have like people at my church who are like serving in active ministry roles who are older than that album <laughs> um, or younger than that yeah, album, I should yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go with um, Jennifer Knapp's Dive In. Okay. Um, which is just a really excellent uh, rock self-affirmation album. And then the, the title track, Dive In, is really excellent. Yeah. And then oh, pairing with another book. There are so many. Okay. Um, yeah, don't, 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 don't lose friends with this. Just uh, <laughs> No, right? I was like trying to think of, like, I have so many friends with books coming out this year, and I was like, I can't, I'm not going to pick any of you. I'm so sorry. Um, no, what I wanted to pick was a book that I'm, I think I might mention it. There's a reader's guide in the back because I read a lot of books. Um, but the book that was most formative for me in beginning to restructure a relationship with the Bible um, many years ago when I was in college is a book mm -hmm. called Manna and Mercy, the story of God's unfolding promise to mend the entire universe. Oh, great title. It's uh, Daniel Erlander. It's from late eighties or early nineties. Um, it's, it's actually, a it's hand drawn. Oh, it's wow. about um, probably a hundred pages long. Uh, it's an eight and a half by 11 kind of shape. So it's, it's hand drawn and it's an, an overview of the biblical narrative, but it's from, it's informed by feminist and uh, liberationist and black mm. theologies that then Dan, um, who is a white man, put together. Mm. There are some things that he, there are some choices he makes that um, as far as interpretation and theology goes that I don't fully agree with, but um, in particular, like how he interprets the conquest of Canaan, um, mm. the way he uses the name of God in the text, those aren't perfect. But it's still, for me, the book I come back to over and over to feel re-nourished by mm. the idea that there is a continuous story starting in the Hebrew scriptures that we carry then into the New Testament and a way that we, the way that we read the Hebrew Bible is both informed by the Jesus that we knew, but also clarifies the Jesus that we um, experience in the New Testament. And I... I love it. It's the Bible study we're using at Queer Grace Community. Um, mm. You can find it on Amazon, probably. And mm. if you can't, just Google the title. Um, it's it's just a really fantastic. That's book. awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you. That I think it went off. I think that's new. New get new. Uh, it worked. Went off well. All right. Good. <laughs> uh, look out, future guests. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> it's waiting. Um, well, Emmy Kegler. 
thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everyone, the book is One Coin Found. Uh, go check it out. Oh, we're going to hold it up. There it is. And look at that beautiful cover. That blue. I know. It's nice. so great. Yeah. Uh, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins. Uh, go and buy it. Uh, leave Amazon reviews or wherever you buy it from. Reviews, reviews, reviews. Uh, nice tweets. Uh, mm -hmm. Cool Instagram photos. Uh, all these kind of things. Make it happen. Uh, Emmy, how else can people connect with you, support your work, support what's going on? Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, all at Emmy Kegler. And uh, you can also find the book account on there, One Coin Found. I have um, some of my past work posted on my website, which is emmykegler.com. And if you live in the Minneapolis area, feel free to come and visit us at Grace Lutheran at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings uh, in the old Holland Elementary building. And um, feel free to, we've also got, uh, if you Google the church, uh, Grace and E M P L S. We have uh, all the pot. Whew, we have all the sermons posted on a podcast, so you can um, keep up with the sermon series we're doing right now, which is on the Jesus Prayer. So taking apart mm -hmm. the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and um, taking it piece by piece, line by line, and figuring out what does it really mean for us, and how do we how do we step into it in this day and age? So excellent! It's a whole bunch there that people can get so into. So much, and, and it's I just live on the internet. Just come hang out. <laughs> it's all good, I promise as well. So get the book. Uh, and because, Amy, I really hope it does uh, reach a lot of people because um, your hope for it is is, is so uh, true and pure, and I think it's it's an excellent work. So uh, I really hope it goes gangbusters and and sells a I don't know million copies. I don't know what books sell. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't want it to sell a million copies. That sounds really demanding and scary. <laughs> yeah. Not ready to bid. That was good. A couple right. thousand. couple thousand sounds couple, fine. couple thousand. <laughs> the second book goes platinum. Um, all right. Well, um, Amy Kegler, thank you for joining. Love, Rinse, Repeat. And, uh, yeah. Liam, thank you so much. I just, it's always just such a delight to talk to you, whether it's just chatting on Twitter or when we get to talk face-to-face -face like this. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs>